You are now listening to the Film Situation Podcast. It's with great pleasure that I have Dara Nafisi of Globe Screen Group on the podcast today. How are you doing today, Dara? For inviting for inviting me to discuss, I think, New York Film Festival, because I was just there chasing up a film for us to distribute in French cinemas next year. To be fair, it's still being negotiated with the sales agents. They're based in China. And Zef and I had a chat about it when he came to visit me, not at the festival. So Zef and I agreed to just run through all the movies playing this year. There's some big distributors, small distributors for a lot of movies, European movies, Asian movies, American movies. Of course, we had made December, Todd Haynes, Priscilla, Sofia Coppola's new movie, Ferrari, which everyone was excited about, Michael Mann that Neon is releasing about dry grasses, played at Cannes, the new Turkish filmmaker Nuri Ceylon's movie. I'm looking through the list here. We also had All Dirt Roads Taste the Salt, which I saw that I believe Barry Jenkins produced. All of Us Strangers, Anatomy of a Fall, Palme d'Or winner, The Beast, and La Chimera, which a French distributor Advertam is releasing, perhaps no US distributors yet. So any US distributors out there, that's a shout out for you guys to get on that. Movie. I love it. Argentina. And Dara, you might just hold the record right now for the most movies mentioned in a one minute span, <laughs> which <laughs> I like. Actually. Um, I too much from the end of the world. Radu Jude's new movie, Romanian director, have not seen it here, which is a Belgian director who had a film Ghost Tropic at Kansas uh, a few years ago that Globescreen looked at too, to be decided. In Our Day and in Water from Hong Sang Soo that Cinema Guild will release this year, I think, in US theaters. Janet Planet from A24, playwright and Annie Baker, who is a first-time filmmaker. And then The Green Border, Agnesia Holland's Fallen Leaves, Finnish movie, Evil Does Not Exist, and we're almost done. <laughs> Kidnapped, Marco Belloccio from Italy, that Cohen Media brings out this year, who knows when. Last Summer, French movie Pyramid Distribution, bringing out that film in France. Music, film called Music by Angela Shanelek, Perfect Days, Wim Vendor's new movie that movie is handling with Neon. Poor Things, Yorgos Lanthimos' new picture. Of course, we all know Yorgos Lanthimos from The Lobster. From um, The Lobster, yeah, and Killing yeah. of a Sacred Deer. And then The Settlers, which I'll talk about later. I really enjoyed that, Seth. That's a great movie that movie is handling in the US and UK. And the first time filmmaker I learned, actually, on another podcast recently, blew me away. I saw that at the... Francesca Beale Theater on the, yeah, halfway through the festival. And then a couple of Chinese films, The Shadowless Tower and Youth. No distributors yet, apparently, a North American premiere. And Zone of Interest, which, of course, everyone talked about a can from Jonathan Glazer. Where should we start, Seth? <laughs> before before we start into that, I guess, give us a little bit of an introduction about yourself and about Globe Screen. Mm-hmm. And I got to preface this with, obviously, I've been, it's been with great joy that I've hosted the globe screen podcast so yeah i mean uh globe screen started as a film and tv conference for mostly distributors sales agents some exhibitors a while back in my 20s i had the idea to bring industry people together first in london then we took it to new york so as the industries evolved we've had distributors pre-covid talking we've had sales agents in the years when the weinstein company had a boutique label we had radius weinstein company which now actually tom quinn has left and started neon in 2016-17 so they're very active now in new york film festival every year um and then globescreen also had a small film festival in london and paris to discover new short filmmakers who 
We wanted to connect the sales agents and distributors. That was called France Green Festival, ran three editions at an art house cinema here in Paris. And in London, we had a festival, Globe Screen Shorts. The podcast, I've been really honored to partner with Zephon. We've had some amazing guests, a lot of cinematographers, such as Dan Spinati, longtime Michael Mann DP, Stuart Dreiberg, who shot The Piano, and Ben Stiller's films, such as, remind me, what was it? The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, yeah. So we're very busy. We also are now just starting to distribute films, mostly documentaries in French theaters. So that's why I went out recently to New York Film Festival. And I often joke to myself, these festivals... Of the 32 movies I mentioned in the main slate, of course, New York Film Fest is non-competitive, there's no awards, only three or four are available for distributors to buy. So it's pretty competitive and minimum guarantees are expensive. And when you're inexperienced, like we are in distribution, you have to prove that you can get good Q&As, good press, reviews with journalists. That's the kind of thing that all filmmakers are looking for is a distributor that really can get press, journalists, of course, open the film in a certain number of theaters, keep the film open in those theaters. That's part of the job too. So... We can go exactly to a few of the titles and maybe not the ones I was chasing, but just how American well, I would start with, first of all, what did you see? What films did you see there and what films did you see that stood out? Okay, so unfortunately, I didn't see too many because one film here that we may not do a deal for. It's like I mentioned what the title is. It may not be an article. I saw that disproportionately more than the others. I only saw uh, four films. I saw... All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt, which A24 is already handling. It was available for France, apparently, but I think it's too early for us as distributors to take that on with many more experience. And then I saw the film here twice, Bas Devos, Belgian director. He had a film at the Cannes and Relatateurs called Ghost Tropic. It's his fourth feature, actually. And then I did see The Settlers, and I was really blown away. A lot of people have seen Scott Cooper's Hostiles with Rosamund Pike and Christian Bales following four... People in the 1860s, American outback, who were escorting a Indian settler back to his native lands, and the Union Army is tasked with taking him back to Montana. And the colonel says, played by longtime character actor, blanking on his name, he says, "You must do this. You must take this." Played by West Studi, who everyone knows from Michael Mann's movies. You must take this man across country, and you will do this. So, the film Settlers reminded me of the Chilean version of Scott Cooper's movie from a few years back, and. It is quite violent in places, so movie will probably release the film on streaming probably as it is at the festival without changing anything. And we have a distributor here in France, which actually own movie theaters too. They're called Sophie Dulac, and they have the rent, the rights in France, so they'll release the film here. I think there's no release date set yet, but yeah, I really enjoyed that. So that was a good one. That's pretty cool. Was that mostly in Spanish? Yeah, it was all in Spanish and no English, I think. And a beautiful cinematography. One of the producers introduced the film and... For an hour and a half film, it was a very good pace. I didn't feel I was watching a feature. It really moved fast and excellent acting. I think mostly new newcomers, not known actors. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that. And then moving on to... Before, yes. before we move on to From the Settlers, let's just maybe talk about it for another moment, if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. Uh, so the original title, the Spanish language title called Los Colonos, it's an hour yeah. and 37 minutes, which I think is a nice running time for a feature film. I think that's like a good sweet spot for an indie film. Now, do you think if it was longer, it would have been less attractive for distributors or buyers? Or what do you think? That's a good question. From a prob, I would say it, the longer it is, probably the more difficult it is to 
a theatrical distribution, at least. Maybe on streaming, it doesn't make as much of a difference. Maybe it it's even could help streaming business if it's longer. I don't know. But yeah, it's uh, you raise up an interesting question. Do running times, how much do they affect distribution? On, the, on a theatrical level, they've got to affect it on some Yeah, because capacity, in Europe, when right? you're a small distributor like we are, you have to pay the subtitler to keep the integrity of the cut. So I can share this because we may not take the film for France. One of the issues I have with the film I saw that I was interested in is that it's actually not a long running time and half the film is in French, so we don't have to subtitle it. But I felt there were issues with the pacing. And as a new distributor, we don't have much clout to say, hey, you should recut the film in these places. Um, and one of the reasons we may not get the film or I may not have the instinct to take it on in the box office is because I'm not really able to re-edit the film. Um, but of course, when you're an established distributor like Bleecker Street or Neon, the, the, the filmmakers and sales agents will let you have an instinct about the cut and then re-edit it. Um, but The Settlers, it, it's, a, it's a good length. It will be subtitled for France, uh, for Sophie Dulac Distribution, that's their label. They are also own seven movie theaters here in, in France, very art and essay, as we say in France, movie theaters like art house cinemas. So yeah. Oh no, go ahead. No, I'm not going to add to you. <laughs> I was just going to say I see that it's the official select submission for Chile for the best international feature film category of the 96th Academy Awards. So they're submitting it this is, and as actually, their um, selection. I, I was listening to Anne Thompson from IndieWire speak uh, at the festival with uh, Tom Quinn, the CEO of. Uh, Neon and, and Tom Quinn was complaining that our movie, um, which I think was Anatomy of a Fall, didn't make it as the official nomination for France and it would have helped their box office in, in America. And then he was saying that, um, oh, look, the other film, which is just finding it in my notes, Taste of Things, has been submitted by France for next year's Oscars. And the reason I mentioned that anecdote is because I think when you're an established indie distributor, it is important if you can have a film that's also being submitted to AMPAS Association Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences because it gives your theatrical run a lot of publicity in January and February leading up to the awards, the Academy Awards. So I personally thought Settlers was interesting for Globe Screen even because if we have a film we take on in the future that can be submitted from a country like Argentina or Chile or Italy, it definitely uh, makes it more interesting for us to release in French theaters. But also from a business standpoint, it increases the minimum guarantees the sales agent or producer may ask for because the, the film now is a different category of prestige. So that was interesting when that happens. That is interesting, actually. Yeah. And that's what, that whole pedigree, that has to, I'm sure, uplift the, the distribution profile of the film, right? It does uplift it, and this is a long time ago now, but when The Lives of Others was submitted by Germany for the Academy Awards in 2007, and then, of course, Sony Classics took the film theatrically, it's a great boost for Sony and for Florian Henkel Donnersmark, the, the, the director at the time. It was one of his first films outside Germany. So it does make a difference when you have, even as a small distributor, when you take on a film that uh, is nominated for the Academy Awards, it's one of the most prestigious, as we all know, accolades that you, you could get. But I think what Quinn was saying is that it's very political how they submit each country. And my personal view is because the, the director, Anatomy of Four, made a very political speech at Cannes about the French system. The French were maybe thinking, oh, maybe we shouldn't submit that because we're going to get more conversations on Twitter closer to the awards next year about, about Justine's speech at the Festival de Cannes. It, it does get political. But then you get over the other years of a separation when Iran submitted that from the Middle East for, and I think it did win the Academy Award and Asghar Farhadi's film. 
I, th- I think there are some years where the submissions from each country are less political than others. So th- that's an interesting dynamic, and it doesn't always end up lining did they, up. Did they screen Killers of the Flower Moon at the New York Film Festival? They, Scorsese's they new it, film? And maybe Apple Originals, who has the film, maybe they already had screened it. Of course, it's coming out in the U.S. October 20, as we all know. Yeah, but I'm going to go see it on Thursday. Death, but I feel like it, it maybe had already had a premiere or they're holding it back for their... Um, I know it premiered at Cannes, so maybe that's... Sorry? Yeah, it yeah. premiered at Cannes earlier in the year. Okay, okay. So now I know what's happening with that. Zeph and I have been working together a long time. I know that Zeph is a definitely a fan of uh, Martin Scorsese. Uh, we could talk for an hour about Martin Scorsese. <laughs> I, uh, we won't talk for an hour about Scorsese, but we'll talk at least for a minute about him because he recently said on the news that the film industry is dead. What do you think of that? We're well, both that in the film after industry. Spielberg defended theatrical back in 2018 when he was saying we need more event-sized films. Um, that was this year he said that stuff, or last year? when? The, yeah, when just was... recently. Scorsese said the industry is dead. I think, knowing you, I think that was when you were at New York Film Fest last year, he said that in a Q&A, is that right? He wrote, okay, the industry is over, Scorsese said, according to our article in GQ. In other words, the industry that I was a part of, we're talking about, what, 50 years ago? It's like saying to somebody in 1970 who made silent films. What do you think's happened? Okay, so that's a little bit more context of what... So the question is, the press loves to grab just like a soundbite without any context. The industry is dead. He just meant the industry that he first, when he first got going, looks very different. I think that's really what he means. So the question for listeners of your podcast could be, if Taxi Driver was being released today instead of in the 70s, would someone like Movie take the film? I think it'd be like a five-part miniseries on Netflix. Yeah, probably. who released Taxi Driver? Was it Columbia? I don't even know. I Columbia. think it was Columbia. But so today, to it would, if Sony had a streaming service, would they release it as you said as a five-part? Would it be a theatrical film, just two hours long, like The Settlers? I think we all respect Martin Scorsese. As of course, he was even Oliver Stone's teacher at NYU, so he's really been there at the beginning of the industry and yeah these famous directors when they make a comment like that we have to wonder what would happen to one of their first films if it was coming out in today's world i think they probably wonder that themselves if they would be able to do that maybe that's part of the commentary yeah yes that's definitely interesting so let me ask you are you excited to see ferrari michael mann's new movie are you going to see that when it comes yes because i love michael mann so the short answer is yes but the other thing is Seeing this is now going to be the second movie where Adam Driver is putting on this Italian accent, which he did also for Ridley Scott's film House of Gucci. Correct. Yep. That to me is a little bit, quite honestly, off-putting. It's what's happening here. Can't they just get somebody else that actually actually has that accent, like somebody from Italy? Or did they have to? I don't know. It just it throws me off a little bit, honestly. So I agree. I think who would you, if you were Michael Mann, who would you cast? That's Italian speaking in Italy. Who would you cast? If, if I'm sure there would be somebody that I would cast, but I don't think it would be Adam Driver. I just don't know enough about famous actors in Italy right now, but I'm sure there's somebody that would be extremely talented that also speaks English that could also do that role and do it really well. Or at minimum a character that is at least Italian American that has some sort of Italian roots. And I'm that goes to a broader discussion. Should actors only play something that 
is really close to them. I know that's been a hot topic on the news. And the answer is no. I think if you could pull off the role, you could pull off the role. But it's just seeing him in the trailer. And then it's the second movie. I'm like, why have I seen him do an Italian accent before? I'm like, oh, yeah, I saw it in the House of Gucci. I'm like, I don't know. It seemed a little comical. It, it makes it slightly comical is the whole thing. And I love Michael Mann. I know you're a big Michael Mann fan as well. We had Dante Spinotti on the, the podcast, who, of course, is the cinematographer of Heat and Last of the Mohicans. And that was an incredible episode yeah. for anybody that's listening. Listen, Go back and listen to the Globe Screen podcast with Dante Spinotti. Yeah. So, well, yeah. Going back to, to Adam Driver, it is interesting because you wonder how much influence the producers of Ferrari had. Of course, Michael usually produces as well as directs, so he has a say in the casting from the beginning to the end. But I think I agree with you, Zeph. I like Adam Driver. But one of the things I was wondering as I was listening to you is that how many audiences have the Star Wars casting in mind when they think of Adam Driver? Because the Ferrari story is... Michael Mann goes to the real places in Italy. He recreates the real Enzo Ferrari environment. As you said, could there be another actor who's just Italian native speaker who's still not going to impact the box office? That's one. And secondly, there's also talk now, isn't there, about the casting for Heat 2 and what Heat 2 will cover. And why not at least DiCaprio? If, you know what I mean? That would at least be less of a bridge too far than Adam Driver. DiCaprio, it seemed like somebody in his family, it seems like he has some sort of Italian roots. It's interesting because without knowing him at all, not even his agent or you know anything, I, I reckon, which is maybe where you're going with this, is that he would try to make, try to persuade maybe Michael to do it in Italian. That's a huge risk for the US distributor, but that's one thing. And then we remember him, the aviator and, and 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 these kind of roles he takes on seriously, intellectual roles. He would maybe try to make it more believable. And he is Italian-American after all. So it is interesting. <laughs> and and honestly, no disrespect to Adam Driver. I actually like him as well. I loved him in Marriage Story, the Noah Baumbach film. I yeah. loved him in this movie called Patterson that Jim Jarmusch did. I thought that was really, he was really shining in that film. what year did Jim Jarmusch do that film? Because I have to look that one up. I want to say it was like 10 years ago or so. Okay. okay. It could be less, maybe less. Okay. Yeah, so the, this Ferrari and... Patterson was from 2016. 2016. Okay, so okay. yeah, about seven, eight years ago. And then there's a film, The Delinquents, which is Argentina's, one of Argentina's films that Magnolia, I believe, will bring out this year. French distributor here in France, small distributor like Globescreen called JHR Films, bringing it out next March. We always release on a Wednesday in France. It's the equivalent of our Friday opening night. I don't think either of us have seen that, so we can skip that title. Okay. Then there's, let's see, in that there's a Japanese director, Ryusuke Hamaguchi, who did, was it? He did a film a few years ago. I have to look up on IMDb. Um, Although, before we move on, I will say that the delinquents is playing i see that it's playing at the angelica film center today and it's a comedic drama and is it from spain I see it's in the spanish yes, language from, well, it's from it's from argentina so we'll oh from argentina it. the poster looks really cool uh, a bank employee moran schemes to steal enough money to never work again then confess and serve prison time while his colleagues hide the cash soon under investigative pressure accomplice Roman meets a woman who transforms him forever. I don't know. It seems like an interesting film. It looks like a good plot. And if 
it's already playing in New York City. Magnolia already brought the film out. But without rushing us, I wanted to get your thoughts on the Japanese director, Ryusuke Hamaguchi. I just looked up on IMDb. His last film, Drive My Car, was quite famous Japanese film. Do you remember this film, Zach? Oh, I remember. I, that's on my list. I haven't seen Drive My Car, but I'm definitely familiar with it. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I'm looking at some photos. I think it won the best international film at the Oscars when it was before it was renamed the best international film. This was playing too, and as a distributor in the US called Sideshow Films, and I learned actually the festival that Jonathan Schering, who used to run IFC Films, this is his new company, Sideshow Films, and they're going to take the film on. In the UK, actually, from our conference days, there's a company called Modern Films, and Eve uh, Gabarro's company is called Modern Films. She, she used to be at Soda Pictures. She was on a panel at the Globe Screen Conference many years ago in London. This is also what's interesting about indie films. The, the patchwork of distributors around the world is very different. So when you don't have a when you do not have a studio film, your distributor in Italy is different to your distributor in France. It's different to your distributor in Canada. So for smaller distributors like us starting out, it gives us an opportunity to meet sales agents, to find films that are unrepresented in terms of theatrical distribution. So New York Film Fest is definitely a good, how do we say in English, a sommaire, a summary of what's happened in the festival circuit for the current year. Yeah. Nice. And I see that the Japanese director that you mentioned that made Evil Does Not Exist, yes. Ryusuke Hamaguchi. Yes. Um, Evil Does Not Exist. The story is, is it a drama? It's Takumi and his daughter. I'm sorry, say that again. <laughs> I'm going to cheat on IMDb. Look at the plot as you talk. That's what I'm doing right now. Ta Takumi yeah. and his daughter, Hana, live in Mizubuki village close to Tokyo. One day, the village inhabitants become aware of a plan to build a camping site near Takumi's house, offering city residents a comfortable escape to nature. Sometimes yeah. it's hard to tell really from like a log line. Sometimes really log lines really do not do a film justice. It's hard to tell. And the, the film that we were looking into from Belgium, from Bastavos, uh, the film is very professional. It's beautifully shot. It's just the, the, the log line is very different than the storyline, as writers would say. It's different to when you experience the film. And it, 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 it's his next film will be even more experienced, I'm sure, and, and have more distributors involved with the film. And then we have, let's see, I'm trying to look. The Yorgos Lanthimos film, Poor Things. Yes. And he did The Lobster, is that right, a few years ago? He did The Lobster. He did The Killing of the Sacred Deer. And Poor okay. Things stars Emma Stone, Willem Dafoe, Mark Ruffalo, Rami Youssef. That's and, my wife, Sarah. She loves that Willem Dafoe. He's one of those faces that you always remember from Mississippi Burning and then the Spider-Man movies. And, and the Boondock Saints. At Eternity's Gate, Julian Schneider, is, he definitely picks his movies well. No disrespect to Adam Driver, but he definitely, Willem Dafoe definitely doesn't take on any film. He definitely picks. He's a, yeah, he's very he's selective. Exactly. Uh, Did you get a chance to see that one? Was that one of the ones that you saw? No, because I came to New York Film Fest for very few days. I lined up my screenings for those days where this Belgian film was playing. So I very much wanted to see Definitely Perfect Days. I wanted to see Anatomy of a Fall because I haven't seen it yet. But let me ask you, I don't think either of us have seen Perfect Days, Vim Vendors, but Vim Vendors is a kind of powerhouse of German cinema. So Paris, what are your Texas. Vendors career? Yeah. Yeah. What are your views on Vim Vendors' career? You know, I, mean, I haven't actually seen, he's a filmmaker that I'm like familiar with, but I actually haven't sat down and watched a lot of his films, quite honestly. How about you? Have you seen a lot of his work? 
I, actually, on movie of all things, I rediscovered, which I hadn't seen even in film school. I'd never seen Paris, Texas. And uh, my wife and I watched it during lockdown and uh, the COVID-19. And uh, she was like, this guy is deranged. <laughs> it's really the other characters. I feel like his half his brain is missing. And that, that's Wait, in which film? I'm sorry, in which film? Uh, Paris, Texas. The brother. Oh, Paris, Texas. I have to watch that. Living Rogue in Texas. And his brother has a billboard company in Los Angeles. And he agrees to go and bring the brother back from the desert and bring him back to society at the same time one of the characters the former uh, yes wife is sending money to their daughter through a texas bank and of course 1970s german expressionism we don't have these kind of films today but i'm sure perfect days will have some how do we say in english some nuances like like paris texas but you've seen paris texas i'm sure no honestly i haven't seen that i know it's a classic but you know I what i've seen actually uh, yeah, about ten, right. nine years ago, I was at the Cannes Film Festival, and I was I, I saw the premiere of his film, The Salt of the Earth, which was a documentary oh, yeah. about a photographer named Giuliano Ribeiro Salgado. And okay. he's a Brazilian photographer. The, it portrays actually the works of Salgado's father, Sebastio Salgado. And now, Salgado that was a really beautifully or... shot documentary. Yeah. And it featured photographs of his work and in these natural environments and the people that inhabit them. And there's like, he specialized in black and white photography. And there were these really amazing photos. And it was a documentary about that when Vim Vendors was the filmmaker. Vim Vendors, yeah. Now the photographer he profiled, I was surfing the internet. He was a uh, South American photographer. You yes, uh, Brazilian. Brazilian, you said so. Okay. Let's go through the lineup because this year was a, a lot of people I met up with. I'd meet up with very many people at Film Festival, but those who I did meet up with who were more experienced than me, they said it was one of the best film festival lineups. So a zone of interest, which Jonathan Glazer hasn't done a movie in a while. Uh, we all remember Sexy Beast. and Sexy Beast is a classic, yeah. Yeah. And Jonathan Glazer did also a lot of music videos in his heyday. He did. And we all remember, those of us who were in film school, they did a box set of Michelle Gondry and Jonathan Glazer of all the music videos they did before getting their first directing gigs. As Zeph said, definitely a background in music video, which helps the cinematography. So let's talk about that. It's Sandra Huller, who also was in Anatomy of a Fall. Is that right? Yeah. And have you seen that yet? It's not out yet, I don't think, anywhere. No, but I definitely want to see that. I'd also like to see it. And I was listening to an IndieWire podcast. They described that it's set at the Auschwitz concentration camp. And Sandra Huller plays the wife of the commandant. It's quite a bleak film, but it's definitely, I'm just seeing my cheat sheet here. The A24 is coming out with the film. It is a German distributor, Leo 9, which is rebranded recently. Anatomy of a Fall is also playing today at the Angelica Film Center. Which one is playing at the Angelica Film Center? Anatomy of a Fall. Anatomy of a Fall, yeah. So that 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 would make sense. That's already out because that kind of came out between Cannes and New York Film Festival. But maybe we, the few minutes we have left, we should talk about because Globe Screen is now focusing more on documentaries. We we released a film in June that we found that the CPH Docs Fest. So we we're looking into fiction films too. But I guess my question for you, Zef, is as a filmmaker, did, did you feel? A distributor's job is different when they're marketing theatrically a documentary than a fiction. What are your initial thoughts? I feel like hmm, that's a good question. I feel like it depends on the film. Like there's definitely documentaries that have come out that I've seen them market them as it was almost the same way that they would market 
a fiction film. I remember at this point, it was more than 20 years ago when Fahrenheit 9-11 came yes. out. And yes. I feel like the marketing behind that as if it was like a fiction film. Yeah. Yes. We all remember the poster, Michael Moore leaning into the into the poster and there's Fahrenheit 9-11 stamped in red. In fact, a little shout out, as they say in the States, to our last release. The film is called Blix Not Bombs, which we released in France under the title Blix Adieu Guerre, Farewell to Wars. And it actually follows the head UN weapons inspector, Dr. Hans Blix, during the Iraq war we see in archival footage, the floor of the UN General Assembly and Security Council, and the moments when uh, Colin Powell and other leaders are making the decision to actually go into Iraq, and we cut to the life and career of Dr. Hans Blix, a very talented director called Greta Stocklasse, who we invited to Paris for her theatrical screenings. Uh, she's based in the Czech Republic. She directed the film. Uh, Czech co-producer, shout out to Pink Productions, based in the Czech Republic. Also, the Swedish film center called Film Stockholm co-produced it. A Globe screen released it in four theaters in June, and we were very much trying to go for a bit of a Fahrenheit 9-11 Approach with the marketing, we invited someone from Sciences Po, uh, which is a famous political science degree here in, in Paris, a professor to moderate uh, Greta during one of the Q&As on July 2nd. We invited the Czech Center and the Swedish Embassy to come to the opening night at a cinema a bit like the Quad, which we call the, the saint andré des Arts, which is in the 6th arrondissement. It opens a lot of Berlin film festival films. So the reason I asked you about the marketing is because we're trying to figure that out is how do we, the next documentary, we can't share yet what it is, but... How do we get the word out? How do we fill seats in an era when we have Netflix dumping films every week on their platform when Mubi is releasing films, both theatrically and also on their platform? When we have local phone companies in France, like Orange and others who have their own streaming service too, and France Television has their own streaming. So I think the theatrical marketing of docs is definitely a challenge, but if you can eventize them with Q&As with the director in person, this is why we tried to have the director Greta come from Prague to Paris. She was able to come, fortunately, in June. I think it definitely helps. And Yeah, I was just going to say that that seemed like, like the way to go, making them into an event and maybe it seems to me with some to local organizations. Fiction films rely very much on the press and having press and industry screenings, and you have to have your New York Times review and your Village Voice, and in France, your Le Monde review, and you have to know what the journalists are before the film comes out, because of course, for those listening about theatrical distribution, as a distributor, you're negotiating with a sales agent for a release date six to eight months in the future. You have to have all your press lined up before that release date. Zeph and I were talking about this when I was visiting New York. You have to also book your trailers in certain screenings and showtimes before your film is actually out. When I say your, I mean our film. I feel like my answer is the biggest difference with fiction theatrical marketing is the reviews are very important. The New York Times, the Times of London, or the Parisian here in Paris, or the other papers, Liberation. Whereas in documentary, it seems if you have the director in the Q&As with the audience, that helps. If you definitely have press about the topic in which the documentary is based on, on another podcast, we can talk about CPH Docs. It celebrated its 20th anniversary in Copenhagen, and they're making an effort to really bring the best documentaries to Europe that have already played at Sundance. So for example, a documentary like, let's mention now that I'm, we're not working on The Longest Goodbye about NASA scientists that played, uh, astronauts, it played at Sundance, it came to CPH Docs. So it's very important to have NASA's cooperation if you're releasing that film theatrically. Unfortunately, I'll spill the beans as the Brits would say, we couldn't get NASA to cooperate for that film. We had a release date in mind and it's now, Arte will release the film broadcast only. So the equivalent of PBS releasing it in the United States without a theatrical distributor. But I'd like to get your views, Seth, because that, that is interesting when it's documentary versus fiction. 
I, I love both documentary and obviously narrative films, fiction films. I don't really know. That's a, it's a good question. Like, how do I find out about it, about a documentary? I feel like a lot of times I find out about documentaries are the same way that I would find out about a fiction film for the most part. You see a trailer and something looks really intriguing. And let's put it this way, without getting too personal, if you and your wife or your kids are taken care of for the evening, you're going to the Quad Cinema on 13th Street or you're going to Village East and you've already gone to the city, you're going to see the posters for documentary, see the posters for fiction. Are you and your wife going to go and see the latest fiction film like Scorsese's or are you going to be curious and say, I'd like to watch a film about corruption in the New York City Police Department, something like that. And then we'll watch that. I'd probably, we'd probably be more likely to see a fiction film for sure. Only because it's not so often that we do go out. And if it's at home, we might be just as likely to watch a documentary or like maybe we'd be more likely to watch a documentary at home than we would out. out. But that doesn't mean throughout the course of my lifetime, I've seen many documentaries out in the theater and uh, I'm big on, I, I go to the movies even by myself. I don't have so much time to do that anymore, but I used to do that you know, just because I love movies. <laughs> so I used to attend, there was this series in New York. I don't know if it even is still around, but it was hosted by a guy named Tom Powers, who was affiliated with the Toronto Film Festival. And it was called Stranger Than Fiction, where every Tuesday night, they would show a documentary at the IFC Center. And I used to attend every Tuesday night. So I used to go once a week in person for years to see and a lot of times i wouldn't even know it was playing i would just just go check out the series and it was really cool because they would have the director there i remember one year they had jonathan demi god rest mm-hmm. his soul who mm-hmm. the director of silence of the lambs um and something wild and just a, a great director and he had made a documentary about called the agronomist mm-hmm. that was about this radio dj from haiti and I remember he was there doing a Q&A. Steven Soderbergh was there once because he made a documentary about, I forget the guy's name. It was, a, it, was, it was a pretty good Steven Soderbergh documentary. You got to look this Jonathan up. Jonathan Demi, I think if I recall now, did do a lot of documentaries in his career. We mostly know him for fiction films, but more than one. And Tom Powers, of course, correct if I'm wrong. Zeph, there's an event in New York City, the Doc NYC Festival, which he founded, Tom Powers. Yeah, I believe he did. The nights at IFC Film Center. But as you're answering my question, I suppose that is a good way, isn't it, to discover as a New Yorker the latest documentaries. If there was a program every Tuesday, you know where it's going to be at a cinema. Yeah. uh, So the Steven Soderbergh documentary was called And Everything is Going Fine. And that was back in 2010. And it was about the artist Spalding Gray. Let me like ask you something. Performance artist. Before I forget, because we have 20 minutes left, perhaps uh, it's morning time, your time, afternoon here in France for me. I'm developing something outside of Globestream, which is an entertainment industry documentary. We had recently a documentary on Val Kimmo. We had a documentary on Ennio Morricone, the composer. We had a documentary on Alan Ladd Jr., who greenlit many films like Blade Runner and Star Wars, and then at the Lad Company, films like Braveheart for Paramount. What are you, it's a bit of a shift in our conversation, but what are your views on documentaries about the entertainment industry? You, do you enjoy those? I love documentaries about the entertainment business yeah, industry. I, I usually watch them. 
Have you seen any recently that you uh, enjoyed and you would maybe catch up with at home or? Yep. It's a good question. I can't think of any that I've seen recently. I feel um, well, you know what? One that sticks out in my mind that I, I think I saw it. It was called it, it's more about something technical and it's called was it called breaking the waves? No, making the waves. Yeah. Uh making waves, the art of cinematic sound. And it came out in 2019. And it's all about examining how directors work with sound designers and how sound plays into the cinematic did they interview experience. Walter Murch or any of these sound innovators in the documentary? Uh, yes, yeah, they did actually, yeah. I was just going to say, I think The Kid Stays in the Picture, the story of Robert Evans, longtime Paramount producer. and uh, Oh, that's a great one. That's worth I even rewatching. The trend of these entertainment industry documentaries, and we all remember that being almost like a music industry doc, very cool use of photographs and voiceover and recreations with Robert Evans when he was still alive in California on camera. But yeah, I think that's a whole nother kind of documentary when we're looking at the industry itself. But I feel in recent years, there's also there's a British producer, Jonathan, I'm blanking it, Jeremy Thomas, who produced the, the Last Emperor and then has a company in the UK, Hanway Film Sales Agency, and also a production company, Recorder Picture Company. There was a documentary that I know you like this filmmaker, Zeph. Mark Cousins did a documentary about Jeremy Thomas, Storms of Jeremy Thomas, which followed him going to Cannes Film Festival and I haven't been able to find it in very many places, but this is another example of a documentary recently about the entertainment industry. Before you move on, I just want to say that the story of film, Mark Cousins, is documentary. It's a multi-part documentary. Called yes, the story. Like the story of film. He it's did incredible. Before it's incredible. the storms of Jeremy Thomas. I've watched it numerous episode. times. And I actually, it's one of the only things that I own on like on a stream, as far as like a streaming, I don't have a big streaming library of titles that I own, but the story of film and a documentary called Dogtown and Z-Boys are the only two yes. things that I own. Oh, he did the story of film, which I haven't seen yet, but I, as I understand, it's a, an anthology of film, right, uh, over the years. Uh, this documentary I'm describing is just about this one UK producer. And then, for example, just 10 years ago, he did David Cronenberg's film about Sigmund Freud. I'm blanking on the title, The a Dangerous Method, and he's been around a long time. And yeah, I've I've definitely enjoyed some of these documentaries on the entertainment industry. With the 10 minutes we have left, should we go back to New York Film Festival since we've started the conversation? Whatever you want, yeah. What, yeah. what were some of the what were considered some of the biggest films that played at the New York Film Festival this year? Definitely we talked about Ferrari because I think it's a big film for Neon and surprising that Michael Mann would let a new distributor relatively take on because this is the kind of film that Universal would put out usually or I know, right? That is actually surprising. That's a good, yeah. really good point. Yeah, of cool, course, though. May, December, Todd Haynes has had a storied career. If we go back to Far From Heaven and more recently, the film about a chemical spill in the U.S., remind me of the title, Zeph, in 2019, that Todd Haynes did. Dark Waters. Yes, Dark Waters. So he had a film out May, December. What are your views on Todd Haynes? Where does he sit? In the, I haven't seen a ton he? of his films, but I've definitely seen... I've definitely seen... I'm not there. There's a movie about Bob Dylan where like numerous people played Bob Dylan, like Kate Blanchett played a version of Bob Dylan and Richard Gere and Heath Ledger mm -hmm. and Christian Bale was in it. I thought that was really cool. And I know that he did, Todd Hayes did uh, what Far From Heaven, right? Far From Heaven, yeah. Julianne Moore. 
Yeah, I've seen portions of that. He did a movie called Velvet Cold Mine. I haven't seen I haven't seen a ton of his stuff, I gotta say. Likewise, I think I've just seen Far From Heaven and obviously Dark Waters. And I'm blanking on a film he did between those two. He's been around a long time. Have to cheat on the internet again <laughs> to get the title. Todd Haynes did a documentary about the band The Velvet Underground. Yes, and, I remember that. So that's uh, it. Actually, looks pretty good. I would want to watch that. It came out in terms years of ago. high-profile films. I think Ferrari and uh, May December Priscilla, Sofia Coppola are the three most prestigious films. But I feel they all came to the festival with distributors and New York Film Festival. As we were saying half an hour ago, it's a summary of what's already on the festival circuit since Berlin. So a lot of films come to the festival with distributors already attached, and it's more of a red carpet moment for someone like Adam Driver or Sofia Coppola, let's say. Well, what are your views on A24? Because I love A24. If something, if A24 puts out a, that's my views on A24. If they put out a film, I want to see it. I want to see every film that they've ever put out, pretty much. It's quietly been building up over the years. I remember when, I might be getting the title wrong, but Spring Breakers was that film. And then a film with Oscar Isaacs way back, A Most Violent Year. They've certainly come a long way. I love that movie, Most Violent Year. It's, yeah. it's incredible. And they put out Good Time, of course. Yeah. Safety Brothers film. Both like the Safety Brothers. So do you think they're going to continue being more ambitious with their film acquisitions, take on films with wider and wider releases? It seems they're getting into production as well now. So what's your views on that? Yeah, they, it seems like they're growing and um, they're doing all the right things. I think they're one of the few companies that made a deal with the Screen Actors Guild during the strike to actually actually support the actors and give them a fair deal. And maybe we can end the conversation today on a bit about your independent filmmaking career. You did a film called The Trouble, which came out through indie uh, what was the distributor called is indie release indie, indie rights yeah indie rights and i got a chance to see it excellent whoever's listening should watch this film for such a lean budget really uh, alex zeff's cinematographer and alex zeff Graham, an amazing yeah. job in the film because they have such a lean budget and there's such beautiful cinematography in the film uh, i love the score too that's one thing that i, I andrew marinaccio michael stevens data 91 they did the original score for the film yeah, and, 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 and folks listening out there, you can tell that the sound is a lot of work. If you put that film in a Dolby 5.1 theater, you'll be able to hear in different speakers what's happening. And, uh, shout out to Julian Evans, the sound designer. Yeah, we put it Shout out to Julian Evans, Jeff, collaborator, I, and Jeff himself. Thank um, you. The film is and the whole cast, John Bogle, Maria Vissimone, Christian Torresville, Villalobos, and Ari Murtai. Are you writing something now, another feature to follow on? I am. Set? I've written several other features and hoping to get into production on my next one next year. Can't say too much about it right now, but it looks like it probably will happen. What's your writing process like? Do you like to do research? Do you go and interview potential characters? So I like to, yeah, I like to talk to different people. I like to, I'm a big outliner. That's really big part of my process is I like to outline, outline. So I spend a lot of time outlining before I get started. I visualize different scenes. Then I, sometimes I go old school and just put them on a stack of index cards. So I'll take one stack of index cards just for certain characters. Okay. That's a character that might be that's going to be in this film. And then I'll on the back of that index card, 
on the front of the index card, it'll be their name. And then on the back, I'll just put whatever little attributes or backstory is affiliated with that character. And then on another stack of out index cards, I'll just put scenes. And then I'll categorize them until act one, act two, act three, and then shuffle them around. And then finally, once I have my outline intact, then I start writing. And then when I start writing, I usually, I like to go through my first draft really fast. And I was trained, shout out to Michael Eldridge, who was my screenwriting instructor at Gotham Writers Workshop. I took a couple of courses with Michael and he told the class that, so you shouldn't be editing your film. You shouldn't be editing your script when you're writing the first draft. Just go through it, get to the end, and then go back and revise your drafts after you've made your first draft. So I try not to edit as I go along because I always thought that was great advice. So for those who don't know, including me, tell us what the Gotham Film Writers Workshop is, how long it's been around, et cetera. It's a good question. I I know it was around for a long time. I don't I have no idea if it's even still around. I have to look it up to see if it's still around. It was it was like these workshops that would exist. Oh, let me look it up. Workshop. Yeah, creative writing classes. Apparently it's been around since 1993. When you'd walk around New York City, like where they would sell newspapers inside those, or sometimes they have those newspapers that you could take for free inside those little kiosks mm-hmm. or whatever they are yes. called. You'd see everywhere at Gotham Writers. So they would have these brochures where they had different kind of fiction writing courses or screenwriting courses. And Let I, me I ask this too. Are there any writers you like that process that you read about in a biography or autobiography? They could be playwrights or film writers or a poet, even a short story writer. Fiction writer, New York Times yeah. bestseller. Who do you like to uh, look to when you do your own writing? I like, as far as screenplays, I love William Goldman, who made Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He's a great writer. But yeah, I like just different. I love reading all kinds of different scripts, like from anything from Christopher Nolan and Quentin Tarantino. And how does Paul Thomas Anderson write his scripts? And then I, I as far as reading, books i have to confess i'm mostly a non-fiction guy when i read i think a good amount of books but almost all of them are non-fiction and then i read a lot of i read articles like in the new yorker and sometimes that inspires different ideas because i like their writing style typically a lot of times they'll use words that i literally have to look up what they mean because they go fancy in the vocabulary but i like that too i like when i see words in an article that somebody might never use in a conversation in real life, but. I'd have to agree with you. I really like The New Yorker on my way back to Paris. I picked up one in JFK. The short stories are excellent and they're a great source of ideas for screenwriters and directors and producers, often short stories in there. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. I subscribe to The New Yorker and The New York Times and that definitely doesn't mean that I don't take with a major grain of salt some of the things that are being put in those publications, but I think it's good to really expand your mindset and read all kinds of different things. And if there are any listeners out there who are in the UK or studying in the UK or working in the UK, there's also, like Zeph said, New York Times, the Times of London, we just call it the Times in the UK. It has a supplement section called a supplement section called culture. And there's some great short stories in there. 
and ambitious young producer or whatever can find out if the rights are available, use it as a basis for a screenplay or short story. And I think I wouldn't remember today, but there are a lot of features that we've all seen in recent years that are based on short stories. Even Drive, of course, is a good example. It was a short story that Hossein Amini then adapted for what eventually was released as Nicholas Winding Ref's film. And short stories can be a great source of for writers and for directors. And absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I love Nicholas Winding Ref. Love the movie Drive. Yeah, he's fantastic. That's a script that I've read as well. I know it was based off a book, but I never read the novel. I would end on this, if I may, Zef, is do you think audiences in New York City are more keen on going to the movie theater than other parts of the U.S.? And I'm also talking about after the pandemic, but just in general, because there's always a choice. You can watch something at home. You can go into a theater. Is there certain parts of the U.S. that are still more keen on the theatrical movie going experience like a festival would be? That's a good question. I'd like to I'd like to take a closer look at the numbers. I, I know in other countries, like in France, like it's more of a and I'm, I'm curious to hear your opinion on this. Like France is more of a cinema culture, right? Although yeah. in the and I've been there, I've been to the Cannes Film Festival twice, and that that's really the part of France that I've been to is like the South, Cannes. Yeah. And I loved it, of course. But from my understanding about the French is they're really more serious about films and taking it as an art form. And over here, there are people that feel that way for sure. And a lot of people, but a lot of people just look at it purely for entertainment. And then there's a lot of people now that maybe watch series more, they'll be more likely to watch TV than they are to go to the theater. Yeah, I think I would build on some of the things you said. I think taking the U.S. first, I think New York City, no other states too, but it's definitely a, a state where there's people are already reading and into the New York Times or Village Voice, into what's hot in the New York Times books bestseller. In France, maybe I can answer with a life experience from yesterday. I went to see an advanced premiere of a new, leave it nameless perhaps, but a fr famous French comedy. I'll just say it's the director of Touchab, uh, Eric Toledano and Olivier Nagash. And no disrespect, but I had to leave the movie theater because I found the jokes quite corny in the movie, not up to the same level as the Omar C film that we all remember from 2010 that Gaumont released here in the Weinstein Company in the US. So I guess that's my way of answering that even in, in France, we are not necessarily loyal to going to the movie theater. Look what happened to me. I left the theater because I wasn't invested in the story and I could watch that maybe on Netflix France when it comes out. And I think maybe in the US, depending on your age and experience and job and everything, it's different for everyone. And whether you really truly like movies as a member of the public, so to speak. But I think that it goes to show that it's not the high profile nature of the director that compels you to go to the movie theater. You have to really have a subject that's going to get everyone out of their house from New Jersey or Connecticut or from Staten Island to go to Manhattan. I mean, whatever, wherever you're coming from to go see a movie, I think that's also why perhaps documentaries might have a future theatricals, because if you see the topic in the news cycle, you're interested, you're going to go and see that movie. There was a documentary that played at the Copenhagen Film Festival, CPH Docs, about Roger Stone. And I think legally, there's no, no one can release this film. But 
that's my example is that when you're really invested in the in the story, you're going to go and see it as an event in the movie theater and perhaps on a streaming service. But I think it's not down to where in the world we are. It's just down to how much the individual person really has to see that amongst other people. So, Is it a different... I know that there was... What was that documentary about Roger Stone that came out years ago? Yeah, it was. The in, world, it was, was it the world according to Roger Stone? The world is according to Roger Stone, and I've seen it in France in my living room. And or no, it's called uh, "Get Me Roger Stone," I think. Right? Get Me Roger Stone, and it came out just on Netflix. And so, film, this is a different. This is a different film that you're talking about, Roger Stone. Yeah, because I was about to describe the film I saw is a new film in 2023 by a Danish director, and I would not like to butcher his Danish name, so I will not mention it right now. But it's a new film that came out and it actually followed Roger Stone with the filmmaker literally following him in his hotel room during the U.S. Capitol riots of 6th of Jan 2021. And it has much more new footage and interviews you wouldn't have in a Netflix documentary. So I think that's the kind of film where if you have a savvy distributor who's experienced, they could take that film, overcome the legal issues of releasing it in terms of Roger Stone's legal team. And then you could actually have a theatrical release and people coming out and seeing it. Whereas if it's a documentary which doesn't shed new light on the topic or doesn't excite people, I think people will wait to see that on streaming wherever in the world you are. And then as a distributor, theatrical distributor, you'll have empty seats at the Angelica or the Quad Cinema, wherever. That's my answer, maybe. Have you ever seen the documentary Client 9, The Rise and Fall of Elliot Spitzer? Yes, and I think that's a crazy story. And actually, I'm showing my age. Directed by Alice Gibney. That was when I first became familiar with Roger Stone because he was prominently featured in the documentary. Oh, I see. I was in film school when that incident happened and it Spitzer of course out of marriage sleeping with lots of hookers let's use Oliver Stone phrase why not and yeah and the documentary they did I think came out in 2010 or 11 is that right the client nine 2010 yeah yeah and I was really revolted as we all were that a New York state governor would but maybe that's a good example Zeph people even then would they go to the Angelica to see that or would they just wait till today Hulu was I saw that in the theater because again I saw it as part of that series that I used to attend on Tuesday night Stranger Than Fiction you showed it, got gotcha, you, yeah. They did, and Alex. I remember the director, Alex Gibney, was there and did a and a and I actually got a man, chance to meet him afterward. Yeah, we all love Alex Gibney, and um, a lot of the people running the top distribution companies now in the U.S., film distribution companies, they've had films they've handled from Alex Gibney and Steve James, and we all love Errol Morris and all these documentary filmmakers. And I think maybe that's our answer in terms of do people go to the movie theater. These kind of documentary directors, people may not wait to see it, on CNN or on PBS or even Netflix. They want to go and, as you did, go and meet someone like an Errol Morris or Steve James. These are, these I will are say, yeah, for me around. as a film goer, and I, I listen, I love going to the movies. And I just, I do it so rarely now because I just, it's hard to, I have two kids and I'm working all the time and it's hard to find the time. Although I am going to planning on going this Thursday night to go see Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah, it's opening soon. I think also to wrap it up, because you want to get on with your days, Zeph, and me in my afternoon, maybe the answer is, how do we get people globally who are not really cineasts to go to the cinema? My job as a distributor, I have to do that. I have to find an audience, whether my film is coming out in four theaters or 400 theaters in a few years' time. But the, the, the may, question... Do, do a documentary about sex. Apparently, that those <laughs> something on Tuesday night, and there would be like a line around the block if that was the, the topic in any sort of way. <laughs> Midnight runs around Times Square. There you go. No, but to make a serious point, we are all on this podcast in the film industry, vest, invested as a cinema goer, cineast or whatever. But 
The question for distributors and filmmakers is how do we get the public, wherever they are, the public, to go to movie theaters when they're not in that line of work? I would say do a clever social media, using social media in a clever way seems seems like the, it would be the hook. And then like like what you touched upon earlier, eventizing it. And and the good news is that digital marketing doesn't cost as much. For example, for our release about the UN weapons inspections, we used a lot of digital ads on Twitter. We didn't have a billboard campaign because we can't really afford that when the billboards near the Paris theaters where the film played. And I think even bigger distributors like Bleecker Street Neon, Cinema Guild, they're all doing that. They are, they are trying to figure out how to reduce their print and advertising spend. And it does work. And getting people who are not cineasts on their social media, whether it's now TikTok or also Twitter, now X, it does go a long way. I would also try to hook up with local organizations to somehow see if they can put out a blast to all their members. If there's anything that ties into, let's say the documentary is about like a Chilean man that's been wrongfully imprisoned. but And then if there's a Chilean population near where you live or some sort of organization, getting them putting it on their radar. I know that's such a specific example, but I feel like there's usually such a specific niche or hook that you could probably tie into different communities and organizations and seeing if you can get yes. all their members to attend the screenings. And and not to interrupt you because my wife Sarah always says, don't interrupt even your colleagues. Uh, I would just add this, that we started the conversation about Neon, a big independent distributor. Maybe I'll end it without giving them too much of a shout out is that on a recent podcast around the time of Parasite, that's right. Uh, Tom Quinn was describing to The Hollywood Reporter how they released Parasite in U.S. theaters. And he said on the podcast, quote, I don't like seeing all the billboards around town, environmentally speaking. It's it's not great for the environment. And it's also an extra spend for us as a smaller distributor. So I would say what you're saying about social media and tying into certain organizations. How do you minimize your spend, but really go after these communities and create a conversation without having to do a traditional media buy advertising campaign? And I think the big independent distributors, they'll continue doing that, whether it's A24, Bleecker Street, Cinema Guild, IFC Films. They'll try to create a conversation without having to put up all the billboards that we see that Netflix does or Universal for the latest Oppenheimer or whatever, tentpole film. So maybe the future is all digital, but perhaps it always was if we're not too much dinosaurs, you and I. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, great having you on the podcast. Thank you, Zach. I always enjoy speaking with you, and yeah, thanks again. Host, thank you for listening to the Film Situation Podcast. 